Who's actually ready? When I say ready, I don't mean like in the Christmas spirit, but like you're one of those people like you're, you're done. Like you're shopping, it's wrapped, you're decorated. It, like, you're, like literally the next three weeks, you're just coasting anybody. Any, and these are the weird ones in the room that have their hands up. The rest of us are all like, what? How? We're all like, oh, am I going to pull my hair out? Like there's just, there's no time, right? Because that's just kind of how Christmas ends. Good for you. Like that's awesome. I'm a little bit jealous. Um, you know, I really used to love Christmas. And it's a happy message already. <laughs> I still do to an extent. Um, but man, like not like I, I used to, you know, as, as in, in maybe it's just that I don't enjoy it as much. I still love it, but I don't enjoy it if that's, if that's possible. Maybe some of you will be able to track along or feel a similar thing that, I, that I'm going to describe is I, I think this is common, but like as kids, we tend to look forward to Christmas with like great anticipation. I, I can remember, um, when I was a kid, like, I, I mean, I loved it. Like, the whole, whole month of December, like, rocking out to Christmas music, like, all the time, helping mom with stuff. So, like, ba- she would used to do a ton of baking of cookies and making candies and doing all this stuff. Me and my siblings would be in the kitchen helping with that, uh, helping with Christmas cards, because people used to do that. Some people still do. But I can remember mom getting, like, the, this crate that had, like, cards in it and, like, the address notebook papers and, like, getting stamps on all, like, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, going shopping, like, we would, I would always, like, have a little bit of money from mowing lawns and be like, I'm going to buy my, you know, family family, like presents and stuff. I loved that. Like it was great decorating. Oh my gosh. Used to go all out. Uh, my mom would always decorate the kind of the first floor and oh look nice. The main floor of the house and she, the Christmas tree would always be themed. So I'd be like, you know, like well, this year we're going to have green lights and silver decorations. And this year it's going to be white lights, and, you know, whatever. But then we had a, a finished basement, like a rec room area that was just the domain of me and my siblings. When it came to Christmas, we could do whatever we wanted. And so there was all the decorations that's like, that we didn't use anymore. You guys familiar with this? You have Christmas decorations you haven't put out in years, but every year you're like, I'm still going to put it away and put it back in my attic, even though I will never use it again, right? So we would decorate the basement was just like this. It was a smorgasbord of Christmas decorations. None of it matched. It was all really old. In fact, today it might be back in style because they would be vintage, okay? But this is like 1970s decorations and lights everywhere that me and my siblings would put up. And then we had our own Christmas tree down there. Um, And I am absolutely convinced that like back in the day, the business model was you open a company in which you, um, you, you make like chimney brushes, and then seasonally, you would also make artificial Christmas trees. You just take the chimney brushes and spray paint them green because, like, that was the consistency. We had one of those in the basement. Um, and we just deck it out. I loved it. I absolutely loved Christmas as a kid. But now as an adult, oftentimes it feels like I'm just trying to survive it. Anybody with me on that? Like, I'm just trying to get through the next month because, man, it's crazy. And, man, it's busy. And there's, like, there is zero white space on the calendar. There's just something going on all the time. Um, There's so much to do. There's cooking and baking and cleaning and Christmas parties and Christmas programs. And, uh, you know, my kids have things. And I got stuff for work that's a Christmas party that we got to go to. Like, there's just, like, all the stuff, all the stuff. And, And literally, there's, like, absolutely no free time on the calendar. I know a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a friend, and I was like, hey, man, we should, we should get together sometime. Um, I'm, I'm a little hungry. Thanks. Thank you. Ooh, strawberry apple. Good choice. Um, and I'm like, we should get together, and maybe it's me and you or a couple of guys or whatever, and we're both just like, yeah, but it can't be till after the holidays. Or last week, uh, my wife and I were talking to another couple. We're like, hey, let's get together for dinner or like do coffee or something. We're like, yeah, but not till after the holidays. And, like, uh, it's actually Christy and I, it's our anniversary in like two weeks. And we're like, we're going to celebrate our anniversary. Yeah, but not till after the holidays, okay? Because it's just like, there's just no time. And, and that, okay, I planned there to be time to celebrate my anniversary every year. Because back when I was full-time landscaping in the landscape business, 
December in Northeast Ohio is a great time to get married and have an anniversary. Fall cleanups are done and snow hasn't really started yet. Not such a great time if you work in a church, okay? Like it's just a little bit hectic. It's just like there's just no time and I know that I'm not the only person that feels that way. Like, man, just from talking to some of you, from knowing some of you, and just knowing the pace of modern life, we're just like, there's so much to do all the time. And it's crazy because at Christmas time, we talk about hope, we talk about peace, we talk about joy, we talk about love, these things that are supposed to define the season. And I'm coming to realize that all of those things that are supposed to define the season are literally impossible if you're going at like a breakneck pace. You know, we talk about like hope, having hope at Christmas time, but hope is something that is primarily rooted and anchored in the future. Uh, like the Christian hope and what we celebrate at Christmas is kind of this two-sided. It's a hope that's kind of rooted in the past, that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose, and then it also means that he's coming back in the future. And so we look forward to that, and there's a hopefulness. Hope is rooted in the future, but when we're busy, we are focused only on the present. Can't worry about tomorrow or next year, or what's going to happen in the future. I got what I got to get done today. And we talk, you know, Paul talks a little bit this morning about peace. It's peace at Christmas time. It's shalom. It's wholeness. We're busy, there's no peace. I don't, I don't feel whole. I feel like my life is going in 87 different directions. Talk about joy, but joy requires seeing the bigger picture of life. And again, when we're really busy, busyness focuses us only on our immediate circumstances. Or maybe the, the, the worst of all is, is just love. It is impossible to really love well if you're in a hurry. Like love requires patience, it requires time, it, it requires like a, there's a, like a slowed down pace to love. Love can't be rushed, it can't be hurried, you can't be efficient in your relationships. Can't tell your family like, hey, I'm, family, I love you so much. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm gonna love you today for about 10 minutes. Can you schedule me in at 3.15? I will love you and it'll be great. It's like, it doesn't work like that. Love requires like presence over time. That, that's the equation for love, it's presence over time. It's more than just like physical presence. It's mental presence, it's emotional presence that, and especially at Christmas time, it's possibly be, possible to be physically present a lot of places, but not really be mentally or emotionally there. And so it's kind of sad and ironic that these things that are supposed to define the Christmas season have actually become impossible during the Christmas season. That like our modern take on Christmas has actually become the like antithesis of what Christmas is meant to represent. And if we're being really honest, and I'll even change that from we to I, if I'm being really honest about my life, it's not just a Christmas problem, is it? This is like life. Like that is the pace of life most of the time. Christmas comes along and it's like, it just takes it to another level. And you're like, oh, I just gotta survive this season. But it's like, yeah, but even once January hits, it's, it's still pretty busy. We tend to go at a, at a pace that's unhealthy, that's unsustainable. And, and there's like so much empirical data that is coming out in terms of just like, like the levels of stress and busyness, like what that does to our health. Like literally you, you live shorter lives if you're stressed and busy all the time. You get sick more easily. You lose sleep. Your mental health struggles, your emotional health struggles. We're busy. Our relationships struggle. If you're a person of faith, our faith struggles because it's like I want to connect to God. But again, because it's relationship, it can't be rushed. It can't be hurried. I'm like, I want to sit and hear from God. I want to know him. But I'm like, I got time for that. Let me just get my Bible reading done and hope I get something out of it, which inevitably I don't because I'm in a hurry. And one of the things that we don't think about is when we're rushed all the time, not just do we suffer and things about our life, but the world around us does as well. You know, it's Christianity, like Jesus taught that here's the most important thing. You love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, but we can get so busy that it's impossible to love those around us. We get kind of so focused on what we have to get done that, you know, maybe we see someone who's struggling and like, I would love to help, but I don't have time. Or actually what's even worse than that I've noticed is like, I don't even notice when someone's struggling. 
because I've not slowed down enough to really see them. It's like we all have this kind of facade, like I'm good and everything's fine, everything's wonderful, but like under the surface, it's like I'm treading water and I don't see that in the people around me when I'm in a hurry. And this, this is why the message of Christmas, not, not, the, not the kind of current version of hustle and bustle and consumerism and there's just things to do all the time, but the, like the real message of Christmas is such good news. Because the real message of Christmas is that idea back there, it's Jesus, it's Emmanuel, God with us. The 2,000 years ago, like God stepped into history. He put on flesh and bone and walked this earth, and he came to reveal who God really was and to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And that is such good news because the way of Jesus flies in the face of much of what we associate with Christmas, yes, but just modern life in general. That the way of Jesus pushes against modern life, and at first that makes us really uncomfortable, but like this is how life is supposed to be and how I'm supposed to live and what everybody else is doing. But when we scratch beneath the surface, we, we realize, and again, just kind of anecdotally and personal experience, but then also empirical data bears this out that modern life is life draining. But 2,000 years of, of the Jesus way shows that Jesus is life giving. And so the message of Christmas is such good news. And one of the areas that uh, the Jesus way flies in the face of our modern way of life is just the pace of life in general. Because like, this isn't just the me problem, the you problem. This is just like everybody. There just seems to be an overall sense of like, go, 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 hustle, grind. There's so much to get done. You don't have time. You got to fill that calendar. And it's just like, man, that, that flies in the face uh, of the way of Jesus. And as, uh, as Jesus followers, if you're here and you say, I'm a Jesus follower, we're called to actually do that, to follow him to be a disciple of him, to pattern our lives after him. Just a little aside, maybe you noticed, we tend to, like as a church, not talk about uh, being a Christian that often. We talk about being a Jesus follower because a Christian can apply, I believe some things, but Jesus' invitation was never, hey, come believe some stuff about me. His invitation was, hey, come follow me. Follow me with all of your life. Pattern your life after me. And when we look at, at Jesus in this area, we see that he was never in a hurry. He was never rushed. He was never too busy. And, and we just kind of kind of call out that there's a difference between like not being in a hurry and then not getting things done. Because I know sometimes we, we fall into this trap. I fall into this trap of thinking, well, well, if I've slowed down, like I, I'm just, I'm too busy. There's too much to get done. I got to be productive. But I don't know. I look at the life of Jesus and it seemed like he got a lot done. <laughs> like he accomplished a lot in a really short amount of time. And yet he was never in a hurry. He was never too busy to like, you know, stop and like, like really be present with someone. Someone like he'd be on his way somewhere to do something really important. Someone would like stop him for healing or whatever, and he would he would stop and engage with that person. He was never too busy to say, okay, I'm just going to take a break. I want to get alone. I'm going to have some solitude. He was never too busy to stop. I'm, I'm going to stop and, and connect with my my heavenly Father. And if we're going to be his followers. We're called to live that same kind of life. And so what I want to do uh, kind of in our time together this morning is look at just uh, one uh, passage from the gospel that, that frames this up of like this pattern, this habit of Jesus. And there are many examples throughout the gospel. We're just going to look at one. But then we're going to kind of scratch the surface and kind of get at the why underneath of that. Like, why did Jesus live this way? How could he live this way? What did he know that he was able to uh, get this into his life? And so here we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at, uh, all right, guys, I got I to press time out again. I'm sorry. I've never seen my mic pack do this, but it is flashing green right now. Anybody? Anybody know what that? What, what's that? What that's about? All right, cool. So if it cuts out, just add it to the list of things this morning. <laughs> 
So Luke chapter five is where we're gonna look at this first passage. And um, I love Luke's gospel. I love the way that he thinks. I love the way that he writes. Um, so Luke is not one of the, the original disciples of Jesus, but when he sits down to write his account of the life of Jesus, he talks to all, he, like, he knows Peter and John and like, uh, Matthew. He knows these guys. And so he sits down, he talks to the eyewitnesses and then he puts together like this very kind of historical, order, orderly, chronological kind of account. Um, and so it's very, it's very detail oriented. And I find that fascinating because what we're going to, to read in just a second, I would find if I was writing an account of the life of Jesus, these are the kind of things I would tend to leave out. I would be like, this isn't that important. Like, let's get the important stuff in there. Get some miracles in there, okay? Get some cool teachings in there. And yet, like, Luke makes it a point to include this. In fact, all the gospel authors make it a point to include things like this. And so uh, let's see what that is. So Luke chapter five, it says the news uh, about him, talking about Jesus spread even more. Large crowds would come gather to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. So we have this picture, right? Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. As his ministry takes off, he's getting more and more and more popular. A rumor starts to spread. He's healing people. He's feeding people. He's doing miracles. He teaches in a way that nobody has ever heard. So, so crowds are coming around Jesus. And everybody wants, wants to get a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants, you know, I want healed. I got a friend that needs healed or a family member. Or, or, or t- Jesus teaches something. And, and what I don't want to miss is that there would always be more work to do. There would always be more crowds. There would always be more opportunities. And yet... Jesus didn't let other people's agenda drive his behavior, right? He didn't let like, hey, what you expect of me or what people need from me. He's like, no, no, I have a, I have a habit. I have a pattern. I have a rhythm. I have something that I'm here to do. Um, and so I'm going to kind of operate on my timetable. And, and so like even in contrast of this, like Luke lets us know that like everybody's busy. Everyone wants a piece of, of Jesus. And yet, even though that was the case, Jesus did something different. It says that, that he often withdrew to deserted places and he prayed. That there's this idea that, that Jesus takes time to withdraw. Jesus takes time to get away. And Luke says that he did this often. Or some translations in this passage and different passages will say that, that as was his habit, he did this. That it was, it was a habit. In fact, even the, like, kind of the tense of the verb withdrew, it's like this imperfect kind of meaning it's ongoing and it's continual. It wasn't a one-time thing. And, and you read that, if you'll read throughout the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus, you see that like, you'll just find this over and over. He would withdraw to lonely places. He would go up on a mountain. He would go alone and go to a garden and pray. And like over and over and over, you see this habit or this rhythm of life where Jesus would, would take a break. It wasn't kind of random. It wasn't just like, man, I'm really tired and need a nap. It, it, was, it was planned. It was intentional. It happens over and over again, and it wasn't just taking a break. It wasn't just a vacation. It wasn't just like inactivity, because sometimes I think we confuse inactivity with rest, where it's like, I'm not going to do something, and so like this will be my chance to kind of to, to, to feel better, but then it's like, I get done not doing something, and I'm like, I don't feel any more rested. There's a difference between inactivity and rest. This is, this is why you can be like, I'm going I'm to have a day off, I'm gonna, and what do you end up doing? Like, I may have done most of Friday afternoon. You binge watch like eight episodes of a TV show and you're like, I didn't do anything, but I feel awful after that because I wasn't rest. This is why we can go on vacation. And if we're honest, a lot of times we come back from vacation more tired than we were when we went. And this is where this kind of line between like rest and escapism comes in. Come back from vacation. I come back from vacation. I'm like, I'm refreshed. I'm ready to get back into the regular kind of rhythm of life. Like that was rest. I come back from vacation and I'm like, I don't want to go back to my real life you know, tomorrow and I'm going to start planning for my next vacation. And that wasn't rest, that was escapism. And we kind of do that, whether it's vacation, again, whether it's binging on TV shows. Like, and so there's like intentionality to rest. It's more than just taking a break. And Jesus, he really does model that. 
that every time that he would get away, it was focused. You see him in prayer. You see him connecting with his heavenly father because there was something that Jesus recognized that that was where true rest came from. And that would have been something that wasn't just something he did once, but it was something that was ingrained in him from the time that he was a child. Jesus, as, as a Jewish man, as a Jewish boy, would have grown up practicing this weekly rhythm, this thing called the Sabbath. That, that once a week, the Jewish people did no work. From sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night, no work was done. It was a day of rest. And this was a law that was kind of instituted that was given to them um, at the very like founding of them as, as a nation um, all the way back in, in the book of Exodus. And so you know, they, there's like 600 plus laws that the Jewish people had to follow. It's like, these were like the terms of the relationship between their relationship and God. Here's how you relate to each other and here's how you relate to God and here's how you relate to your neighbors around you and all of these different things. And of those 613 commands, there's like a top 10 list. It's kind of like the table of contents and they're called the 10 commandments because we're just super original at naming things. And the fourth one is actually this Sabbath command. And I, I wanna look at that. That's found in Exodus chapter 20. Um, and so God is, is, is establishing this group of people as a nation, the nation of Israel. He's brought them out of slavery in Egypt and says, okay, here's what life is going to look like for you now. And we read this in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're to labor for six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates command continues. We're going to look at the rest of that in a second, but I'm going to just kind of sit here for a minute. I mean, just right off the bat, like, I, I, you got to love a God who, and the, the top 10 things that you're supposed to do is take a break. I'm commanding you to take a break. Like, that's awesome. And, and, and this is, okay, this is radical for the time that it is written. You know, sometimes we, we, we come to the scripture, we come to, uh, especially like the Old Testament with these lenses of like, oh, they were so kind of like just, just antiquated, barbaric, like oppressive, misogynistic, patriarchal like jerks. And, and a lot of times what we do is we're imposing our modern way of seeing the world onto an ancient people. And I, I believe it was C.S. Lewis that called that chronological snobbery. <laughs> it basically says, because we're further along in the timeline, we're better than you. Um, but understand at the time that this was written, this was radical. This was insane. There was no other culture uh, in the world that, that had this kind of idea baked into it that like you need to take a break. That this was a time in which if you, if you didn't work, man, you, you didn't live. You didn't eat. There wasn't like refrigeration and stuff. It's like, no, you have to work every day. You got to labor. You got to work. Like your survival is dependent upon it. Like a, a group of people here being talked to that had spent their entire existence up until this point, all they knew was slavery. It was work 24-7. And God's like, okay, we got to break that. that. That's a habit and a pattern. Like work, work, work. We can't have you doing that. And so he gives this beautiful command to take a break and I don't want us to miss kind of the equality of the Sabbath. And this is, again, something that would have been so shocking to that culture. He lists different groups of people. He says, okay, taking a break. Well, you and your sons and daughters. We're like, oh, that makes sense, right? That's who, kind of who he's talking to, the Israelite people. But he doesn't stop there. He's like, there, there are several groups of people that are going to rest on the Sabbath. He says, also, your servants. That the Sabbath was, was this one day where everyone was like, okay, everyone's on equal, equal ground here. It's, it's an equal playing field. Like every single person gets to rest. Your status in society, like it does not affect whether or not you get to rest. Because a lot of times then and also now, depending on kind of where you sit culturally, our ability to rest often depends on somebody else working. It's like, I want to take a break. I want to take a rest. And so that plays out a lot of different ways. Maybe it's like, you know what? You know, what's restful for me? It's some shopping therapy, you know? 
Like I could go, go, you know, go to some stores, browse Amazon, and that's restful. And, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I think one of the things we've got to realize is in order for me to do that, someone's got to work at those stores. Someone's got to produce those products. And if we're being really honest, most of the things we buy are made at a place and in a kind of environment where workers are not being paid well around the world, where it's practically slave labor. And so there's like, oh, me resting is actually causing someone else to be in a rough situation. Maybe rest is like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go out to eat and have a really, really nice meal. And it's like, yeah, but for me to do that, someone's got to cook the food and someone's got to serve the food. Me resting is going on a vacation. And it's like, well, yeah, but to do that, someone's got to work the gas stations to fill up my car. And i got to have hotel staff. And we've got to have whoever's at the resort and whoever's doing these things. And so there's just this, this reality of like, man, like even for me to rest. And a lot of times it kind of breaks down in, in our modern world very much socioeconomically. If I'm able to rest, people who may be a little lower in the economic standings aren't able to. And they're the ones that make my work possible or my rest possible. And so there's something radical about the Sabbath. Because that was true of that time as well that says everybody, everybody gets to rest. This is something that's baked in um, from, from God for every single person. And it's not just your, ser- your, your sons and daughters, your servants as well, also your livestock. Like, you're, like you're, your animals, like they, they need to rest as well. There's something about, uh, and we see this actually play out through these patterns of seven, how Sabbath gets played out over the seven year periods and you get to two years where they're supposed to let the fields rest. Like don't even plant anything, just let whatever comes up come up. There's a pattern of like, don't squeeze every little thing out of creation itself. Like, let the creation rest. And then the last category is also the resident alien or like a foreigner. Okay, this isn't just something for you because you're God's people. It's like, this is something that we want to apply to every single person. The idea of rest was, I mean, it was, it was an all skate. Everybody gets to benefit from this beautiful pattern of just resting. And then what's fascinating is this is like, of the Ten Commandments, this is the only one that's given that has like a reason for it. God says, hey, don't do these things or do these other things. And he doesn't really say why. This one, he says, I'm gonna tell you why you need to rest. So the second part of this command says, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Get of all the commands, this is the only one with a reason attached to it and it points back to creation. It points back to this account in Genesis 1 of God resting on the seventh day. We can go into the weeds about like, what was it? Those are literal days? Were those figurative days? Were those ages? Was this poetic? What, what is this? That's a fun conversation. Christians have been having that conversation for 2,000 years. We get to continue in on that. That's awesome. But I don't want us to, what's the phrase? I messed it up in the volunteer service too. Don't lose the forest for sight of the trees or something. You know what I'm talking about. I can't say it, but I know what it is. Because there's something else going on here. And, and, and there's something that would always bother me before I kind of understood what this was saying. I was like, this was troubling to me. This was confusing to me. Because I'm like, why does God need to rest? I was like, did he get tired? Was he like, whoo, that was a long week. Have a nap. You know, take a little break. So I'm like, well, if that's true, then I'm like, I've got some major theological issues there. I'm like saying that God is limited like me and he gets tired. I'm like, that's not good. So it can't be that, right? And then I'm like, okay, he rested on the seventh day. We have the first six days. What did he do on the eighth day? And the ninth day and the tenth day and however many billions of days there have been since the first day. Like, what, 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 what do we do with that? And, and then Jesus steps into the picture who reveals God to us. And then things really get messed up with the Sabbath because Jesus is constantly like kind of confronting the religious leader's idea of it. In fact, it's like the thing that he got in trouble for most. They're like, you're healing on the Sabbath. You can't be doing that. And he would like just say things that are like, what? In fact, one of the things that he says in, in defense of what he's doing on the Sabbath, he says, you know, my father, God, is, is always working even to this day. Like, what are you talking about? I thought you said God rested. What do you mean he's always working? Now I'm really, really confused. And so 
But rather than just sitting in that confusion, that should make us go, oh, maybe my understanding of this isn't quite right. What's actually being said here? That God, God resting and our response to it is, is actually something of much greater significance, and it's so cool. And so when you go to um, Genesis 1, right, this, this account where it's like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and it kind of plays out, and there's days one through six and, and seven, on the seventh day where he rests, and, and we bring very much our modern ideas to that thing, and we're like, how did the world physically come into existence? And tell me exactly how, I want like video cam footage of what exactly happened, but to the ancient peoples to who this was written, they had no concept of our ideas of modern physics and science and these kind of things. For something to come into creation for them or come into existence didn't mean it physically existent, existed. It meant it had form and function, that it served a purpose. And so you have this creation account that begins with like disorder and chaos and darkness and waters. And out of that, God brings beauty and order and function, that, that he structures the cosmos into such a way that it functions in a way that humanity, who's created on the sixth day, can flourish and can function there. And it's this beautiful picture, and, and there's like layers to it. One of the things that scholars see is that it's formatted in such a way that it looks like a, a temple being built and dedicated. That in the ancient world, when you read some of like uh, Israel's texts, but also their neighbors, so the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the ancient peoples had kind of this process for like they would build a temple to their deity, and there'd be a way that the temple looked and a way that it was structured and, and things that they would do, and then they'd put a little image in there, like a little statue or something that represented that God, and then finally when the temple was all ready, whatever God supposedly would come down and fill that temple and that the presence would be there, and it was said that the God came and rested there that he took up residence there, that he dwelt there. When you read through the Genesis 1 text, there's this idea of like this cosmic temple that is being created. In fact, biblical authors pick up on this later in their text when they say things like, you know, God does not dwell in, in temples built by human hands, that the heavens are his throne and the, and the earth is his footstool, that like this whole thing, God created this cosmic, this amazing thing as a place for him to dwell with humanity. And you even get to the, the, the creation of humanity where these other temples would have a little image and God puts an image in this cosmic temple as well, but he looks at humans and says, you are the image of God. You are the ones that represent his goodness and his love to all of creation. You are this kind of priestly representative role. And so the temple is set and it looks just like that. And on the seventh day, when everything is complete, God comes and rests in his temple. He takes up residence one Old Testament scholar, Dr. John Walton, says it this way in, in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. He says, when God rests on the seventh day, he's taking up residence in the ordered system that he has brought about in the previous six days. It's not something that he does only on the seventh day. It's what he does every day thereafter. This is why there's no eighth day. It's like the seventh day. It's like God rested. He is here. In fact, it's really cool when you read through the account. It's morning and evening, days one through six. There's morning and evening. There's morning and evening. There's morning and evening. There's no evening on the seventh day. This idea that it just continues every day thereafter. Furthermore, his rest is not just a matter of having a place of residence. He's exercising control over this ordered system where he intends to relate to people whom he has placed there and for whom he has made the system function. It is his place of residence. It's a place for relationship. But beyond those, it's also a place of his rule. And so God, he, he calls this, this nation out and says, I want you to rest on the Sabbath. I want you to have this regular rhythm in your life, not because I got tired and I needed a break. And I was like, whoo, I'm, I'm God. If I got tired, you're gonna get tired too. But because it was his way of saying, listen, I rested. I came to take up residence. I'm ruling. I'm reigning. I'm in control. 
And so I want you to rest once a week because it's this physical, tangible reminder for you to take your hands off the steering wheel of your life and go, he's in control. That you can stop working and striving like crazy and know that I've got this. That you can stop trying to control everything and know that I've got this. That I want you to, to trust me. And, and the Sabbath practice is a reminder of that. A reminder that, that I've taken up residence, that I'm in relationship with you, and I am seated on the throne. Again, Dr. Walton says this in another one of his books, The Lost World of Genesis 1. He says, he, talking about God, is asking us to recognize that he's at the controls, not us. When we rest on the Sabbath, we recognize him as the author of order and the one who brings rest or stability to our lives and our world. We take our hands off the controls of our lives and acknowledge him as the one who's in control. Most importantly, this calls us to step back from our workaday world. Those means by which we try to provide for ourselves and gain control of our circumstances, Sabbath is for recognizing that it is God who provides for us, who is the master of our lives and our world. And God commands us to rest. And it's actually, it's interesting too that, you know, it's like, well, that was old covenant, right? You know, that was the, the, the kind of the Mosaic law. And, and yes, it was. And Jesus brought us into the new covenant. But this is something that, again, it's anchored back to creation. This is like, this is pre, you know, old covenant. This is how God's like, I'm creating things before sin even enters into the world. There's gonna be this pattern of you resting. And this is something that we still need. But rest isn't about inactivity. It's not just about, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a good nap in this afternoon, which, you know, hey, naps are good, right? It's not just about going on a vacation or, or losing myself in a great series on Netflix because those things don't necessarily leave it, make us you know, refreshed and rested. The rest is about something different that ultimately we find rest when we recognize Jesus' reign. That's where true rest is found. When we come to a place where we go, you know what, I'm not in control. I'm not on the throne. I'm, I'm not in control of anything at the end of the day. The only thing I'm really control over is just kind of my own, my, my own thoughts and actions. That is literally all that I can control. But tomorrow, the things in the future and what other people do, like, I don't, I mean, I don't control anything. But I know the one who, who does. And he is so good. You know, sometimes at Christmas time, we celebrate Jesus came as Savior, which is absolutely true, but we forget that Savior wasn't the primary thing he came as, that he came as Lord. He came as Savior. He came, or he came as King. And as our King, he saves us. Like that, that Jesus is, you know, the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the Messiah. And our Messiah, our king, saves. He's ushered in a new kingdom. And his followers, as his followers, were part of that kingdom. He says, I, I've, I've come to establish a new kingdom of which I am, I, I am the king. And I'm making a way for everyone to join into that kingdom. And so I want you to be a part of that. He's saying, I want you to stop. I want you to slow down. I want you to rest. I want you to trust me. God took up residence back in Genesis 1. It was a place of residence. It was a place of relationship. It was a place of rule. At Christmas time, God takes up residence in his creation again. We see those same three things. It's Emmanuel, God with us. That, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He made his residence among us. It was about relationship. He showed up to relate to us, but ultimately to, to pay for our sins, to destroy the thing, to take away the thing that destroyed our relationship with him in the first place to bring us back to him. And he came also to rule, to be the king on the throne, to be the authority in our lives, to establish a new kind of kingdom. He said, I want you to stop. I want you to slow down. I just want you to trust in that. And for being honest, one of the reasons that we're so busy, and I won't speak for all of you, but I'll say one of the reasons that I'm so busy most of the time is because I lose sight of that. One of the reasons my life is so crazy is because I don't recognize Jesus' reign. I think that I'm in control of things. 
that, I, that I'm the one that makes things happen, that I hustle and I grind. If I get that done, that I'll have value, I'll have worth, my identity will be set, and will be good. And Jesus is like, hey, I just, want you to, I, just, I, want you, I want you to come rest. I want you to trust that I have that. That's found in me. Like, you, you don't have to work for those things. And, and so I, I don't just want to leave us there and be like, we're all stressed out. We shouldn't be at the end, right? I want to maybe give us some handles for, for how to do this. How, how can we get to a place where we recognize Jesus' reign at Christmas time, but the rest of the year as well, just practically, there's really two big things. Uh, the first thing is, is a large category. Um, I think all of us probably just need to stop doing some things. If you're making a Christmas list, list this year, I think you should make a, a list beside it that says the things I'm not going to do anymore list. <laughs> like the things I'm going to say no to, like this is just maybe categorically, I'm just done with this thing right here. And, and that's going to be hard. And there's going to be cost involved in that. You know, maybe that is at Christmas time saying, you know, I just, you know, four stops in one day is just too much, okay? Like, we're going to have to say no to some things. We're going to have to say no to maybe that Christmas work party or that one family function or that thing at my kid's school. Like, it's just, it's just I can't go at that pace. And here's what is likely to happen. Some people might get upset at you for that. They're like, I can't believe you wouldn't be there. I can't believe you wouldn't go. I can't believe. And, and again, it, it's coming to a place where, where, where we, we can say, like, all right, do I do, I do this? Do I trust Jesus enough to, to know that I have his approval so I don't need theirs? That's not being like a jerk about it, right? It's not saying, I'm not coming to your party, ha, 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 right? That's just a fist, okay? Just shaking my fist or whatever you want it to be. <laughs> but it's, I mean, just lovingly be saying, hey, listen, like, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that invitation. I, I, I love that you thought of me. And, you know, maybe next year, like, I'll do some sort of rotation, but right now, I just can't. It's not healthy for me or my family or my faith or where I'm at. Like, it just... And if even after a loving conversation like that, someone is still mad at you, I don't know that they're really loving you, but they're kind of concerned about themselves at that point, right? Because it's like, hey, I, 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 God's call, I need to be healthy, I need to be thriving, I need to do these things. So saying no to some things, maybe, maybe it's saying no, and this one, I, I'm not quite there yet because our kids are younger, but I know we're getting ready to cross that threshold where it's just going to get more and more crazy with our, with our children. If you're a parent, it might just mean saying no to some things for your kids being involved in. I feel so, man, I feel bad for like our kids and students right now. I mean, I know I'm getting older and older. It's not terribly long ago, kind of, that I was in school. I'm like, it was not like this. It was not something every night of the week and at like 365 days a year. There's just, it's just going and going and going. Like, man, part of resting might just be saying, hey, we're, we're just not gonna do those things. Pick one thing, you know, one thing a season. Like just one, there's one thing that's going on and maybe some people around you might get upset at that again. About to get over that. Our kids might be a little upset at that. They'll get over it, right? <laughs> They're resilient. I believe in them. And, and he, here's the thing, and, and this is so this is so hard as a parent, because like you just want to do everything. Like I want them to be happy. I want them to have a great life. I want them to do these things. And I have to remind myself sometimes that all right, my kids' happiness is not my highest priority. Their healthiness is, whether that's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Like I want my kids to be healthy, and them being healthy may make them unhappy in some areas. Because I thought about this, especially because I'm, I'm going to get to kind of where I really struggle in a second. And I know, if you know me, I'm busy all the time, and it's unhealthy. I carry it well, and I'm chipper, but that's just a way of suppressing what's inside. <laughs> but I, I, as I think about, like, Braxton and Paisley, I don't want them to live the way I am in terms of, like, just so busy all the time, and things are crazy all the time. And, and it's just like, I'm like, well, well, I don't want that for them, so why would I instill that in them now and say, this is how life is. This is how you should be busy all the time. Like, oh, man, like, I want, I, want, I want better for them. So maybe it's saying no to that. Maybe it's saying no to this. Is, and this is where I said I'd get to me in a second. 
saying no to some extra hours at work or all the projects that you need to get done and just rest and trust in Jesus. Because a lot of times we, we wear a busyness with a badge of honor. I'm so busy, man. How's it going? I'm busy. Like that's like our, our default response. Look at these projects. Like, you guys want to see the pictures? Guys, I, fin- I finished installing my window well yesterday. You guys want to see pictures after the service? I can show it to you, maybe. Actually, I don't know if I have pictures or not. Ooh. But it's just like, honestly, for me, and, and, and so there, there's a sense in which it's like, hey, accomplish something that's good. But there's a sense in which, for me, it's my way of saying, I need your approval. Am I good enough? Do I matter? My value is in what I produce and what I add to the world, not really in who I am. I was like, do I trust Jesus enough to say, I'm not going to do some of that stuff. I'm just going to trust him. You say I'm valuable. I'm made in your image. You died for me. That I, can, I, can, I can rest from some of these things. And so I, there could be a whole host of things. It's like there's some things we need to stop doing. But the second part of that is, is there's kind of like some replacement that happens. Because, again, inactivity isn't rest. And so what are we going to replace that with? Let's begin to practice kind of some Sabbath rhythms. Now, I, I don't mean you have to do some fancy religious thing where literally for like one day a week you're going to set aside an entire day. Like maybe that's just not feasible, but, but set a time like where it's, it's regular. It's a rhythm. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's once a week, but it's for an afternoon or a couple of hours, and maybe you build from there. But we're going to say, hey, like this, this thing right here, this, this time, this is just off limits. But it's going to be a time where I rest, where I can slow down, I can d- and do some things in life that really give you life. Some things that you recognize, like, this is a gift from God. And I can recognize that he's the one that provided it for me, and I'm trusting in him. And that can be a whole host of things. I mean, maybe for you, it's, you're going to sit down and read a good book. Some of you love getting lost in a book, and like, you haven't done that in a long time. Or maybe it's just eat, like making a great meal and eating it. I, I would say, though, like, try to avoid like, going out to where your rest would cause somebody else to work. Right? Like, like, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do something else. Maybe, maybe for you, it, it's, it's, it's having a good glass of wine or a beer if that's your thing. Maybe it's taking a nap, like just a good nap. Be like, you know, uninterrupted. I'm just going to take a nap, man. It's going to be a good nap. Hey, if, if you're married, part of that is like set some time aside and make love to your spouse. Got kids at home. It's like, hey, play, play, play some, sit down, play some games with your kids. Go for